Uh, Our title for this series in Galatians has been Fresh Air and Freedom. And the reason for that is we've been suggesting that the gospel, which is the core issue of this letter that Paul writes, that the gospel is the ultimate breath of fresh air that leads to and provides freedom. And this morning I'd I'd like us to, to take some time to think about that word freedom. What is it? Why is it so important? What does it mean to be free? I remember uh, years ago hearing a song by a band called the Soup Dragons who sang, anybody remember? I'm free to do what I want any old time. A few people nodding. I think the Rolling Stones also had a song with the same title. But is that freedom? Is that a decent definition of freedom? Being able to do what you want when you want. Now, if I had a a Scottish accent and I said the word freedom, what would immediately spring to many people's minds? Brave. Well done, John. Brave. Yeah, you sort of need to say that. Yeah, like that. The movie Braveheart, starring Mel Gibson as William Wallace, who who led a campaign against the colonial reign of the English in Scotland. And in the final scene, which the first time you see it, the first time you watch it, it's a deeply moving, maybe even deeply disturbing scene. Wallace is stretched out on a rack, an execution device of sorts, which interestingly looks like a cross. And as he writhes in pain, dying for the cause, he's somehow able to scream that one word as he takes his last breath and he lets go of that white cloth that he's been holding tightly in his left hand freedom. Is that it? We hear people talk about freedom of speech, freedom to worship, free trade. It clearly is an important word and an idea and a desire that conjures up lots of images and lots of thoughts for us. It's a word, as someone has said, that reverberates or resonates in the heart of every man and woman. This international cry for freedom. But what is true freedom? And specifically, as we turn to God's word, what is freedom from a biblical perspective? What does the freedom provided by the gospel look like? Well, that's very much at the forefront of Paul's mind as he continues in this letter to the Galatians and in chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to it. I think it's page about... 1,171 in the the Bibles that should be in the pews if you want to follow along. Now at the end of chapter 4, there is a section that we didn't get to last week. Which ran or runs from verses 21 to 31. And it features the cast of Genesis 12 to 22. Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, Ishmael. They all get a mention It's generally seen as the most difficult passage in the entire letter. And so I'm not going to unpack it in any detail. Uh, Although we did touch on it briefly during our series in Genesis. But as you glance down those verses, and just just scan your eyes down those 11 verses, Galatians 4, 21 to 31. And what you'll notice is that the word free appears five times. And Paul, if you like, is priming his readers for where he's going. And you'll recall how Abraham had two sons to two different women. Ishmael was his son by Hagar, the slave woman. 
And Isaac was his son by Sarah, who Paul calls the free woman. And Isaac was born as a result of a divine promise. In other words, it was a God thing. Whereas Ishmael was born as a result of Abraham's impatience and Sarah's impatience. A very human thing. And so Isaac is or was a child of promise. Ishmael wasn't. And Paul's point to the Galatians is that they, like Isaac, are children of promise. That's their identity. That is who they are. They are children of the free woman. Abraham was their father, yes. Real question, who was their mother? And in verse 31, Paul answers that question for the Galatian Christians as he clarifies their identity as children of promise. He says, and it's on the screen, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, not children of Hagar, but we are children of the free woman. Children of Sarah. And as he goes on writing, he starts to unpack this idea of being free. What does it mean? What does it not mean? And how are we meant to use this freedom? Well, let's stand and let's read the first 15 verses of Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You're not trying to be justified by the law. Sorry, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will have to pay the penalty, whoever that may be. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature or the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in this one command, in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Okay, take a seat. And and please keep your Bibles open and have a look at verse 1. It's a well-known verse. But just a bit of a recap. You will recall how the false teachers or the Judaizers, as they've come to be known, how they had been doing the rounds and they had been making the point that in order to be fully accepted by God, in order to be fully accepted by God and fully incorporated into the people of God, that faith in Christ alone was not enough. Something else was needed, and that something else was a commitment to the law. That's what was going on in this area at this time. You see, in their thinking and in their teaching, people also had to live under 
the law. They had to become like them. They had to join their little group. And for Paul, that was a nonsense. That was what we've called a Jesus plus gospel. And it really annoyed the apostle. In fact, this brand of Christianity, if you could call it that, was a restrictive pain in the neck. Literally. It was a yoke of slavery, to coin Paul's phrase. It was a real burden. It weighed people down. It held them captive. And so Paul writes, listen, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And the emphasis yet again, as Paul writes, is on what Christ has done. It's Christ who has set you free. He's your liberator. He's your rescuer. He is your saviour. You don't have to do anything in order to be fully accepted by God. Christ has done it all. You're free in Christ. Do you remember last week we looked at that list, that identity list? I am, and we listed all those things. I am, here's another one, free in Christ. It's because of what he has done. And so Paul pleads with me, says, listen, stand firm. Please stand fast. Stand fast in what Christ has done. If you stand fast in that freedom, don't let anyone put a harness of slavery on you again. Now the specific aspect of the law that the Judaizers were passionate about, or particularly passionate about at this time, was circumcision. And they were saying, or maybe they were even insisting, that Christian converts had to undergo this relatively minor surgical operation. Paul didn't agree. Not because he thought that circumcision was a bad thing or it was a wrong thing. The problem for Paul was why they were thinking of doing it. It was the reason that lay behind the decision to get circumcised that was troubling Paul so much. If, under the influence of the Judaizers, they were doing it, because it was seen to be or it was believed to be necessary for total acceptance. If it was something that you did in order to be fully incorporated into the people of God, then Paul says, do you know what you're doing? You're effectively embracing a Jesus plus gospel. Don't go there. That they, along with the Judaizers, he was saying, you're implying, if you go along and get baptized, what you're implying is that faith alone in Christ alone was somehow insufficient. That the finished work of Christ somehow needed some finishing touches. And Paul doesn't miss and hit the wall with these words. Because he states clearly here, and this is strong. And this is actually quite uncomfortable, but he states clearly here that if they let themselves be circumcised. In other words, if you buy into this teaching. If you go along with this mindset, this non-gospel then Christ will be of no value to you at all. Christ will just be of no value to you at all. And that, that was something very strong for these people to hear being said to them or being written to them. But Paul goes on. He goes further. He actually states, the Jews will see if any of you let yourselves be circumcised. And if this is the reason you do it, then there are three consequences. One, you're going to have to keep the whole law. And that will be a total nightmare. Secondly, you're going to be separated from Christ and grace. Which is a frightening prospect. And in some ways I'm not entirely sure where to go with that comment. 
And the third consequence is they will miss what really counts. Which is faith expressing itself through love. Something Paul picks up on later and we'll turn to in a moment. But in verse 7, Paul then grabs hold of one of his favourite ways of describing the Christian life. He sees it as a race. And this is not the only time that Paul uses this, this metaphor. But on this occasion, he starts by encouraging the Galatian Christians. He says, listen, you were running a good race. You were doing great. Then he asks a question, who cut in on you? In other words, who's gotten your way? Who's knocked you off your stride? And the answer is obvious, it's this crowd. It's this crowd who are out to confuse you, who are out to disorientate you, who are out to distract you. Paul in verse 12 actually calls them a bunch of agitators. These are the guys that want you to be circumcised. And at this point in his letter, Paul has almost reached the end of his tether, so to speak. And in what appears to be a rather sarcastic outburst, he admits to wishing that the Judaizers would just go and castrate themselves. That's what it says in verse 12. I mean, if they're so obsessed with cutting away part off, why don't they just go the whole way, as he puts it, and become eunuchs? And Paul is clearly upset by their behaviour. That's an understatement. He's annoyed that the Galatian Christians are being deceived. He's annoyed that someone has cut in on them. He's annoyed that people are disrupting them from running well. He says, listen, it was for freedom that Christ has set you free. And anyone who's cutting in on that, well, they should just go away and I don't need to labor the point. And if nothing else, and I realize you do need to be extremely careful how you apply this. But if nothing else, this underscores just how strongly Paul felt about a Jesus plus gospel. Circumcision was an unnecessary, unessential plus. They were, and we are, and I need to say this really clearly, totally acceptable to God. And were adopted into his family through faith in Christ alone, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us, to use Paul's words earlier in the letter. Let me say that again. We are totally acceptable to God, and we are adopted into his family through, great, through faith alone, in Christ alone, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us. And anyone who suggests or anyone who teaches that anything extra is required is way out of line. And as a church, it's something we've got to constantly guard against. And the first week we looked at this, we looked at some of the ways that we can imply that Jesus is not enough. That you've actually also got to do this in order to be fully accepted by us. What is the this that we sometimes add in order for people to say feel fully acceptable to God and incorporate it into the family of God? And we've got to search our own hearts and we've got to search our teaching as a church to make sure that we never go there. Because it is way out of line. And Paul has some strong words to say about that mindset. Paul didn't preach circumcision is what he says in verse 11. But what Paul did was he constantly drew people's attention to the cross. Which in verse 11 he says, you know, I realise it's an offence. The cross is offensive. 
It was then and it still is in some ways today. And the reason that the cross is offensive is because it offends, amongst other things, human pride. The cross says, listen, there's, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. And we don't like that. When we don't like to be told that we need to be saved, that offends us. But we also don't like to be told there's nothing we can do in order to be saved. We want to bring something to this. We want to contribute something. The idea that Christ has done it all, that offends us. But that, as we've said before, is the gospel in high definition Father. And whenever we as a church blur that and distort that, then we're guilty of adding to the gospel. And having dealt with this specific plus here, which was circumcision, it's not our specific plus, but it was their specific plus. Paul then returns to the subject of freedom, and in verse 13 he writes this, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. This is a divine calling. And having spent some time emphasizing what they have been set free from, Paul then tells them what they've been set free to. Yeah, you've been set free from a yoke of slavery. You've been set free from the need to be circumcised. You've been set free from the need to do anything because Christ has done it all. And now in these verses, Paul makes it absolutely clear that they and every Christian are set free to do what? Love. Love. What is the only thing that counts? The only thing. Faith. Not full stop. Faith expressing itself through love. Saving faith, true saving faith gives rise to love. Love provides evidence of genuine faith. It's the way it works. And here in verses 13 to 15 as he confirms their calling to be free he starts by saying, listen, here's how you're not to use this freedom. He says, don't use to indulge the flesh or to indulge the sinful nature is probably a better translation. Christian freedom is what Paul is saying here. It's freedom from sin. It's not freedom to sin. We are free. If you you like, we are free to echo the sutra. We are free to do what we want any old time. But choosing to do what I want rather than what God wants, choosing my way as opposed to God's way, may be our culture's definition of freedom, but from a Christian perspective, it's actually a form of slavery. It's why Jesus, on one occasion, to a group of believing Jews, said this, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Christian freedom is radically different from this. Glance down at verse 24, part of a section we're going to look at next week, because Paul says that those who belong to Jesus, those who are children of God, what you've actually done is you've crucified the sinful nature, the flesh. You've crucified it with its passions and its desires. In other words, you're now free to live a different way. You're free to live God's way. On one occasion, Abraham Lincoln said, freedom is not the right to do what we want, but what we ought Freedom is not the right to do what we want, but what we ought. Freedom in Christ means to live as God wants us to live, as we ought, as in fact we were designed to live. That's true freedom. That's life to the full. The Galatian Christians, you see, were free from the curse of the law, but they were not free from the morality of the law. God's guidelines for morality, you don't just ditch those. You're free from the curse that they bring, yes, but you don't just ditch them. God's guidelines for morality is laid out, for example, in the Ten Commandments. They still provide a way of living that not only makes sense, 
but actually frees you up in your relationships with God and with others and with yourself. Whenever you put God in the right place in your life, you're free. It's a form of slavery whenever you go and commit adultery. It's a form of slavery whenever you start taking things from people, things that don't belong to you. You just tie yourself up. You just oppress people. You just hold people captive when you tell lies. Free from the curse of the law, but not from the morality of the law. So don't indulge the sinful nature. You're free now to live God's way. You've got God's spirit within you. He enables you to live God's way. And that's true freedom. And so having encouraged them not to use their freedom inappropriately, Paul then explains how the Galatian Christians and how all Christians are to use their freedom. And he writes this, rather. Here's what it's all about. Serve one another humbly in love, is what he writes here. And this is brilliant. Because it appears to me that this is a stunning case of contradictory double talk. Paul has been at great pains to stress how they're free from slavery. And yet now he tells them to use their freedom to become slaves. That makes no sense whatsoever to me. Serve one another. The Greek word for serve means to be a slave. Or to do service as a slave. So... If you want, Christian freedom is voluntary slavery. Rather than live for self, rather than become preoccupied with me and my world, I, we, are free to live beyond ourselves. We're actually free to consider others better than ourselves. That's freeing. A life of freedom is a life of loving others. And you see, whenever you do that, says Paul, do you know what you do? You fulfill the entire law. Summed up in one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Now let me say something about that phrase. Especially the last two words. Huge amount of confusion about this one. Love your neighbour as yourself. See we live in a context in a culture where you hear a lot of talk about self-image, self-esteem, self-loathing. And those are very, very real issues. Hear me on that. But the danger with that sort of thinking is that we dismiss the command to love our neighbour as ourselves because we're struggling to love ourselves. And because I struggle to love myself, that means I can't really love my neighbour as I love myself. Now my understanding is that Paul, Moses and Jesus, who all used this phrase, they all assumed that all people would love themselves. This is, and and this is crucial and very helpful, I think. That is that all people wanted what was best for themselves. That all people wanted to be healthy. That all people wanted to be safe. That all people wanted their own good. That all people wanted to be well. And so to love our neighbour as ourselves is to take that love that you already have for yourself, that natural love that actually wants what is best for you, and make that the measuring rod in your love for others. So in other words, that means you care about what happens to others as much as you care about what happens to you. And we all do care about what happens to us, but do we care about what happens to us as much as we care about what happens to others? Means you want to feed the hungry as much as you want to feed yourself when you get hungry. And there should be there's lots of examples you could go to in that. 
This is how we are to use our freedom, says Paul. You've been set free in Christ to love your neighbour. And when we don't do that, what happens? Well, it's quite a significant warning of all issues. If you bite and you devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Do you know, in other words, a church of people who do not serve one another humbly in love will end up destroying itself. End up destroying itself. And unfortunately, our society, our country is littered with people who have not been loved. Who have not been loved. Who have not been served by other Christians humbly in love. And therefore have been destroyed. We are free to love, says Paul. And what really counts is faith expressing itself through love. As Jesus said, you know, people will know you're my disciples when you love one another. That, that's how people are going to know you belong to me. It's when you actually love one another. And so as we go from here today, my prayer is that we will embrace our freedom in Christ, which has been made possible because of the cross. Faith alone, in Christ alone, and what he has done for us. And he gave himself for our sins to rescue us. We'll also go from here to keep running the race and to run it well and not to let anybody cut in on us and not to let anybody knock us off our stride by telling us that we've got to do this and we've got to do that. Or we remain focused on Jesus. And also that we will leave here to use our freedom, our God-given freedom, to just love one another and to serve one another humbly in love. Just before we uh, sing our final piece, I'm just going to give you a moment. And in that moment, I just want you to maybe take the opportunity to thank God for your freedom in Christ. But also to take this opportunity to, to think about others. Others who are part of this family, who are part of the family of God. And the truth is, you do struggle to serve Him. And you particularly struggle to serve them humbly. And you particularly struggle to serve them humbly in love. And whenever we come across teaching like this in God's word, we, we often say let's not be hearers of the word but doers. And in a sense that may mean we need to go away from here and we may need to say sorry and we may need to forgive. And we may need to take make the first move. But just in the quietness. That may allow you to take an opportunity to think, to reflect, and to allow God to speak into your heart.